Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So this week, I've been thinking about a particular phrase, and I'm not exactly sure how this phrase got stuck in my head, but I was thinking about the phrase, turtles all the way down. Turtles all the way down is the name of a John Green novel. And I assumed that that it was some sort of joke because of this author's sort of tongue-in-cheek way that it was like a bunch of turtles stacked on top of each other wearing a trench coat, like trying to buy a movie ticket or something. That's what I kind of had in my mind. But I turned on the old Wikipedia machine, uh, and I found out that the origin of this phrase was much more fascinating than I could have ever anticipated. Probably uh, the best recorded history of this phrase came from a philosopher named William James. And after a lecture one day, he was talking in the 1800s about how the, the earth revolves around the sun and was sort of teaching the the good news of heliocentrism, of that the sun is in the middle and the earth goes around it. And an old woman came up to him after his lecture, and she said to him, "Uh, Sir, that's a nice little theory that you have, but it doesn't make any sense. I know, and I'll tell you, what the earth is really like. And so he's trying to be kind, and he says, Okay, tell me, what's it like? And she said, It's a giant disc. And it sits on the back of a giant turtle. So Professor James doesn't doesn't want to sort of dunk on this woman, doesn't want to make her feel foolish, but he does kind of want to poke at this a little bit, says, okay, ma'am, well, I just have one question for you. What's the turtle standing on? And the woman says, ah, very clever, but I have an answer for you. That turtle is standing on yet another larger turtle. And so Professor James kind of politely says, and what's that turtle standing on? And the the woman says, it's no use to keep asking these questions. It's turtles all the way down. The earth sits on a turtle, which sits on a turtle, and so on and so forth until it's turtles all the way down. This phrase has come to be sort of a stand-in for sort of some of the little arguments that we get into where we make these sort of claims that we can't prove, or but they're not irrefutable, even if they don't make sense, they don't pass the bar of science, it's turtles all the way down. Today's not the day we're going to get into epistemology and how we know what we know, but what I want to point out to you this morning is, in so many ways, the culture that we live and breathe, the air that we live and breathe around us right now is so much of outrage all the way down. It is so much anger. All of the extremes and politics or culture have this impulse. If a company doesn't agree with me and the way I believe, I won't go to that company. If a journalist doesn't say the same things that I believe, well, then I won't read their paper. If, if the, someone says something doesn't line up with my tribe, I'll cut them off again and again and again. And it's even worse when somebody says something that is regrettable and harmful. I saw this play out this week with a, with a pastor friend of mine. He said something 
And within an hour, he knew he had said something wrong. And so he took it down and he apologized. And his apology was dissected for whether or not it was a good enough apology. What we have, what creates this this moment, this, this outrage all the way down is a severe deficiency of grace. We live in a grace-starved culture. We struggle to show one another grace. And before that self-righteous spirit starts to creep up in your heart, church, I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about people in here. I'm talking about us. How graceful are we to others? When somebody falls down, when somebody fails, what is our reaction? Do we humbly try to help and restore them? Or is the, is the gut reaction of our heart something more like, glad I didn't do that. Glad I'm not like them. Do we look down our nose derisively? If they were a better Christian, this wouldn't have happened. Do we quietly think, well, they must have had this coming? Must have done something horrible to deserve this? Do we cut off and shun those who have different understandings about what the Bible teaches. Church, beloved, we have a real deficiency of showing grace to others, showing grace to one another. And the only antidote for this, the only thing that can save us from this critical lack of grace is the person and work of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus is the revealing of his glory and grace. It's the unveiling of all that the Old Testament had been anticipating. And this unexpected uncovering, and in it we find the transforming of grace of Jesus, is never failing. If we want to see our lives transformed into something more graceful, if we want to get past this grace deficiency, if we want to move past outrage, It has to come from dwelling on the unrelenting grace unveiled in the very person of Jesus. This morning, we're going to read John 1, 14 through 18. It's one of the most famous parts of this chapter. And I'd invite you to stand as I read it. You can follow along on the screen or if you have your Bibles in front of you. We're going to read verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. If you've been around church for a while, you might be familiar with these verses, especially uh, the first verse. This is the climax of John's telling us what does the incarnation, what does the coming in the flesh of Jesus mean when he gets to this, when he starts to to unpack it, this is the climax. The word 
which created the world, the word which was eternally with the Father, the light of the world that shines in unending glory, the author of life who gives life to every human soul, that word became flesh. And as Eugene Peterson puts it, became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Much is made of this idea that Jesus dwelt among us. And the reason that much is made of this idea is because it's, he's echoing language that all of the people, all of the Jewish readers of this text would have known. Because what, what John says here is Jesus pitched his tent among us. This is clearly uh, referencing in their minds the tabernacle. This idea, you'll remember that before Solomon built the temple, God was worshipped in the tabernacle, this movable tent that they made on the plains outside of Mount Sinai, that they would pick up, pack up, and move with them wherever they went. And even when they settled in Israel, this was the place that God was worshipped. He was worshipped in a tent. And John says, Jesus came and put his tent in the middle of us. But if we just see this tabernacle reference, we're not going far enough. John is doing something actually much more beautiful, much more interesting, because this is all about the climax of the book of Exodus. This text is reminding these people of so much more. You'll remember that that God leads his people out of Egypt. And after he leads his people out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea and God crushes the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. The people of God move from that miraculous moment to Mount Sinai, where they receive God's covenant, his 10 commandments. And then Moses goes up to get further instructions from God. As he goes up, he's away for a few days. And the people of Israel, well, they get a little bored and they get a little idolatrous. They decide to have Aaron make a golden calf. Everybody contributes all of their gold to this calf. And then once Aaron finishes it, they bow down and worship this calf. These are people, let's not miss this, who are weeks away from seeing God kill the entire Egyptian army. Egypt a superpower militarily of its day is washed away by the power of God. And a few weeks later, the people of Israel are like, yeah, that's nice. But how about if we just have a golden cow? And on the heels of that, on the heels of these people so quickly turning away from God, turning their back on his covenant, turning their back on what he says, they make idols and they worship these idols. What's God going to do? What is God going to do in the face of this like blatant, absolute sin that they're doing? Is he going to wipe them all away? Is he just going to kill all the people? He actually offers that to Moses. He says, Moses, you know what? I'll, I'll kill them all and we'll restart with you. My promises to Abraham, I'll still make them work. Let's just start over. What do you say, Moses? And Moses steps in and says, no, God, they're still your people. They're still your people. And God says, good answer, Moses. I'll do that. And then God says, Moses, what do you want? You've got me. We're on the phone here. What do you want from me, Moses? And he said, I want to see your glory. And God said, yeah, tough beans, you're not. 
you can't see my glory. No one can see my glory and live. But here's what I'll do. I'll do the best I can for you, Moses. He says, Moses, here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in a rock and I'll cover you over with my hand and I'll pass by you. And after I'm passed, I'll take my hand off and you'll be able to see my backside as it floats past. God, Moses agrees to this. And listen to what God says as he passes by Moses, as he is covering Moses so Moses doesn't die from the resplendence of God's glory. Here's what God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He tells Moses exactly who he is. In that last phrase, steadfast love, and faithfulness is how we come back to John. Because when John tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth, that same phrase, full of grace and truth, was how the Greek translation of the Old Testament rendered this. It's what God said about himself as he covered over Moses. Now think about that. No one can see the glory of God and live, but God is full of grace and mercy. God became flesh and lived among us. And what does John say? We saw his glory and lived. John says that they got to do what no one before them had been able to do. They saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus in the flesh. He was the unique Son of God. And what was he like? Just like God in Exodus, he was full of grace and truth. This glory is beautiful. This glory is a big deal to John because glory throughout the Old Testament, it is both the presence of God and the worship that is owed to God because of his glory. And in Jesus, we have both of those things. We have God's presence in a tangible and real way, wrapped in skin. And in Jesus, we have one who is worthy of all worship. John says that we have seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, full of grace and truth. To see Jesus for who he is, is to see the very glory of God revealed to our hearts. And that's why John continues to tell us something that Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer, said. He's previewing John's sermon that he's going to, to give us here in a little bit in the rest of the chapter. John the baptizer said, the one that comes after me is more important than me because he existed from all eternity. The gospel writer puts this parenthesis here because it's only through the incarnation of Jesus does this sermon point of John's make any sense. John was older than Jesus. We know this. And yet John says, Jesus came before me. It's only in the context of the fact that Jesus, the eternal God, became flesh but has existed from all times that this makes any sense. He is pointing out that the eternal God who has existed through all time, before the creation of time itself, stooped so low as to become human. The kind of human who, who has a birthday, probably not December 25th, by the way. 
the immortal God took on immortality. I, I love what I love what St. Augustine said about this. He said that Jesus was so human, he paid taxes. Is there anything more human than that? I mean, listen, Ben Franklin said that there are two things that are sure for humans, death and taxes. The immortal God took on mortality in such a way that he experienced both death and taxes. Jesus experienced them both. The immortal became mortal, that in dying, he might make our mortal souls able to experience the joy of immortality with him, eternal life. He took on flesh so that those who were born and wrapped in death and sin could have that eternal life here, now. And as John contemplates this, he understands the overflowing fullness of God's love. The eternal covenant love of the Trinity spills out onto the earth and gives us a gift. Grace upon grace. Grace stacked on grace. Or to maybe put it another way, when it comes to God, it's grace all the way down. That's more grace than we can imagine. That's... This is actually the uncomfortable and almost offensive part of the message of Jesus. We can't imagine it. We have trouble. I I know I have trouble imagining this. Think about it this way. How do you feel right after you have intentionally sinned? I'm talking about the times where we come to a fork in the road and we say, I could do the right thing or I can do the wrong thing. I should do the right thing but I'm going to do the wrong thing. How do you feel in that moment? Let me tell you how I feel because I make that decision. I do that. In my head, in the moments after that, if I think about God, the only God I can imagine is the one that my guilt and shame is trying to tell me about. The only God I can imagine is not who God says he is, but who my guilt and shame say he is. Because in that moment, what does God say about himself? The Lord, the Lord, a merciful God, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Church, we can't outpace the grace of God because it's grace stacked up on grace. He is an endless fount of blessing. And that grace that we have found finds its full manifestation in Jesus himself. John contrasts Jesus and Moses because of how much we have found in Jesus. Now be careful, be careful. Because many of us have backgrounds in sort of American evangelical theology that make us misread verse 17. We see where, God, uh, where John says the law was given through Moses, grace and peace or grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we think that he's setting up this, oh, law bad, Moses bad, Jesus good, grace good. But that's not what he's doing. He's saying Jesus is so much better, so much more. Remember the grace that was shown at Mount Sinai. Remember what we talked about when I mentioned Exodus 33 and 34. How does God respond to the blatant, 
obvious and intentional, vicious idolatry of the people of Israel. Idolatry that was not just like time-wise, moments after their miraculous deliverance, but in a way, this idolatry was taking away God's glory. What did the people say right before they bowed down to this golden calf? Ah, yes, calf, the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt. They knew that they had just made this thing, but they ascribed to that thing the miraculous deliverance of God. So what did God do? I mean, in the face of this chutzpah, what did God do? God responds in grace. After Moses intercedes, God renews his covenant with his people. He immediately takes them back, drawing them back with his kindness. Beloved, in our darkest moment, when we sin with a high hand, when we intentionally ascribe glory that, uh, for something that God has done to something else, grace upon grace, Upon grace, the unfathomable, unimaginable grace is what we find in Jesus. He has made known to us this gracious and glorious and kind face of our Father. No one has ever seen God the Father as he is, except for Jesus. And Jesus has made him known to us. He is the only one who could. Jesus stepped off his throne in heaven to show us what God is like. He pulled back the veil to show us grace. And then he took us room to room where we saw more grace and more grace and more grace. So we see that the grace of God is infinite. His glory is matchless. But in a real way, your heart and mind and my heart and mind want to keep these things as abstract. We want to keep these things as nice doctrines that we talk about around Christmas. Good ideas that don't really transform our lives. But I want to suggest a few ways that the coming of Jesus and living among us is really transformative for you and I. First, Jesus truly lived among the people. That's why I mentioned and I love Eugene Peterson's translation of verse 14. He moved into our neighborhood. Jesus didn't stay cloistered in a monastery. He could have. They had one. It was called, it was called the Qumran community. He didn't run away from the messy and broken people around them. He ran towards them. He sent his disciples into town. <coughs> he sent his disciples into town so that he could have a conversation with a sexually broken woman. He ate with notorious sinners. He rubbed shoulders with the religious elite and the poorest of the poors. And the same should be true of us, church. Who is the grace of Jesus pushing you to meet and engage with? How do you handle those chance encounters on the busy streets of downtown St. Petersburg? Do you know your neighbor's names? Do you know their stories? If Jesus moved into our neighborhoods, we should too. We have to fight this modern impulse to sort of pull our garage door up, pull our car in, shut the garage door and shut the world out. Now, that's not a very St. Pete illustration because very few of us actually have garages. So how about this? Is the only time your neighbors see you in one of two scenarios? You're walking from your street parked car to your door and then you're in a hurry because we're on our daily run. Well, 
not we're. You're on your daily run, not mine. Church, if the grace of Jesus Christ is real, and it's really as glorious as John tells us it is, then we really need to love those around us in real and tangible ways. And because he has shown us unrelenting grace in the face of our clear and obvious sin, don't sleep on the fact that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Truth that is honest about our sin. God doesn't just hand wave our sin away as if our actions have no consequences. No, the truth of the matter is that grace is costly that it is always a bloody and painful thing to pay for sin. Sin always creates death. And that's the beauty of Jesus taking on flesh, on mortal flesh. Because in the mortal flesh, he died to pay for your sins and mine. We can't let the unending fount of forgiveness make us think that it's free from consequence, that our actions don't matter. They do. But in Jesus, the punishment is just moved to someone else. It's taken off of you. It's taken off of me and put on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. The unimaginable grace of Jesus comes at a horrific cost. His body and his blood wrecked on the cross. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is what we celebrate, church. The king and creator of the world takes on my debt and gives me his fortune by laying down his mortal life that I might live eternally. This advent, as we wait, as we anticipate, let's dwell deeply on that on what he has done for us. Let's consider the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because when we're filled with awe and wonder at that, when our hearts are overcome by the boundless, unimaginable grace that you and I have been shown, more and more, that grace is what changes our hearts more and more that realization of what God has done for us, that from the depths of woe, he has raised us up. From the depths of sin, he has changed us and forgiven us. That is what begins to change our hearts. I'm reminded of the Grinch who stole Christmas. The Grinch who Dr. Seuss tells us had a heart that was two sizes too small. And the Grinch goes to Whoville and he steals all of the presents from Whoville. He takes all of their their nice things that they're about to give the little Who's. And then as he sits up on top of his mountain and everybody in Whoville wakes up the morning of Christmas, what does he hear them singing? He hears them singing, God rest you merry gentlemen. And all of a sudden, their faith in the face of hardship, it says that the Grinch's heart was enlarged by three times. Church, when we understand the grace that has been given to us by Jesus, it genuinely enlarges our hearts. We're able to take in all those around us because all of a sudden the world gets to see something different in you and me. 
not the cynicism, not the lack of grace that we are so used to in everyone around us, but instead people can bump into us, our hearts who have been enlarged by grace. And just like the covenant love of God that flowed out into this world through the person of Jesus, when we really experience this change, when we are bumped into the overflowing of our now enlarged hearts by the grace of God is that grace and love flow out of us into others. May God grant us to see Jesus in that kind of way. May God grant us that sort of change of heart, that sort of transformation this Advent season as we await his return. Let's pray.